Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Soccer show and a very rare midweek review. Barcelona might be on top in league play, but they'll go no further in the Copa del Rey. Madrid put an end to recent Clasico result trends thanks to a stellar outing from Big Ben's. Elsewhere, Dortmund and Bayern didn't play too smart. West Ham completely fell apart. And Frank Lampard is getting a brand new start. Wowzers. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who loves a brand new start. He loves a midweek review. He loves wearing crazy coloured Belgium shirts. Graham, hello. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Yes, in the words of Gianni Infantino, today I am Belgium. This was the only good thing about Belgium from the 2022 Men's World Cup. This this, this training shirt. Um, I'm not even sure that I like the home shirt with the flame. Do you remember the Guy Fieri flames on oh, the yeah. sleeves? Yes. Wasn't too keen on that. But this multicoloured uh, training shirt, I, d- I do quite like. And this, I picked this up when we were all in New York together in Times Square. Of course you did. We went shopping. Uh, Joe, Taylor and and myself and you uh, hand in hand as we walked into the Pele soccer store, I believe. (laughs) I think we skipped as we went inside, actually. Oh, yeah. We found the shirt you desired. Then we went to Olive Garden afterwards. It was a wonderful day, wasn't it? Do you remember? Mm, Wonderful. I do. We skipped everywhere on that on that on that trip. Yeah. For two weeks solid. Yeah, yeah, fun times, fun times in New York. Uh, joining us, Graham, our fellow Skippy, it's Joe Lowry, who's not wearing a Belgium shirt, but uh, we love you all the same, Joe. Oh, well, thank you, Ryan. First of all, yes, we did skip everywhere. I would like to refute the second part of Ryan's retelling of that evening. On behalf of Taylor and myself and Graham, we did not go to Olive Garden. I believe we attended a, a barbecue <laughs> restaurant Don't put that afterwards. on me, Ricky Bobby. Um, uh, I, just, I just don't want to be responsible for Taylor, especially being looped into having to go to Olive Garden. I got nothing against Olive Garden, but something tells me that, that Mr. Rockwell wouldn't be too pleased with knowing that even a fictional version of him set foot in an Olive Garden. To be fair, the barbecue joint that we did end up at wasn't too far away from a sort of Olive Garden style brand. (laughs) It was still on Times Square, yeah. Yeah, Uh, that's true. You're right, you're right. Taylor would be upset. We might be misrepresenting him. His favourite Italian food is, of course, Sbarro. As right. is uh, as it is of with course. everybody. Um, Taylor, not here, unfortunately, for this recording. Uh, get well soon, Taylor. We wish you all the best. We shall march on without you, though, good sir. And we shall wish everybody listening a happy Frank Lampard Day. Greg, hey. he's back. He's back. <laughs> Greg, is, is there any scenario? Is there any timeline where you saw the Chelsea managerial story <laughs> veering towards Frank Lampard as caretaker manager at Chelsea for the rest of the season, or for another couple games? We'll see how this pans out. Well, I guess with Todd in charge, we really shouldn't rule anything out at this stage. But I just can't believe that Bowley and the decision makers at Chelsea have looked at the current situation 
and thought Frank Lampard is the solution, even on an interim basis. So he's been confirmed today as Chelsea's interim manager until the end of the season. I get the theory that Chelsea want Lampard to be their Solskjaer. He's a club legend, you know, come in, lift the mood, get the fans back on side. But I said this after Lampard was sacked by Everton. He's a misery guts. He is not a Solskjaer in terms of his demeanour. He doesn't lift spirit, uh, spirits at all. So this appointment is just utterly, utterly baffling to me. And I am completely 100% here for it. My last uh, lasting memory of Frank Lampard, Graham, is him standing on the roof at Goodison Park after they were not relegated last year and sort of his God status, arms out, look at me, I'm amazing. <laughs> and look, here he is. He's got a, a wonderful mid-table Premier League job again. Exactly. I mean, he is precisely what Chelsea needs at this moment in time. They need a manager who, in his last two jobs, the moment that he left, the team his team got immeasurably better immediately after he left his last two jobs. That seems like what Chelsea need at this moment. Ah, uh, 4D chess, I see. Joe, what are your thoughts on Frank Lampard coming back? Can you remind us what kind of Chelsea team he had? Uh, you, not necessarily good or bad, but maybe what they did? <laughs> sure. I think we saw a lot of... Front foot, very aggressive, almost like overly aggressive attacking play under Frank Lampard. So Christian Pulisic, I think a lot of folks out there, audience members of this particular show, will remember that Christian Pulisic had some of his best time ever as a professional playing for Frank Lampard. So that is one weird sort of twisted positive for Chelsea fans who might also be USMNT fans, is that Christian Pulisic loved Frank Lampard. There was a quote, Doug McIntyre put this out, from Christian Pulisic's book, which... Uh, what do we think? Christian Pulisic wrote like two percent of it, one percent of it. I'm not. I'm not too sure where where the line is on that one. I'll, I'll let somebody else set it. But the quote is: By the time Frank left, I felt that I had finally convinced him of my value to the team. I'd started to gain an appreciation for him as a manager. I was sad to see him go. So Christian Pulisic might be the only one. Mason Mount, a couple others. Mason Mount, yeah, right. There's a few that are are probably thrilled with Frank Lampard coming back in because he really did sort of elevate or at least was around while some of these attacking players were elevating their game. So we're going to see a lot of front foot play. We're going to see them be aggressive. We're going to see, I think we saw a lot of 4-3-3 under Frank Lampard and we've seen a lot of back three for Chelsea so far. I would be very surprised if Lampard is super married to one particular formation. So I'm guessing Mm. we'll see some mixing and matching. But yeah, Ryan, to answer your question as fully as I can, at least in the amount of time we have, I think Lampard is going to get this this team running downhill as much as possible. Well, is that a good thing? I'm not sure. I don't know. The thing is, none of this matters, right? Like this is incredible banter. Chelsea's season is over, right? They're not going to win the Champions League. It doesn't. That doesn't matter. They're not going to make the Champions League spots. Like I, I struggle to figure out what the like what the gravity is of this situation, other than them maybe saving face slightly by climbing up a little bit at the end of the season and ending up in seventh. But who cares? Like, like who on the outside of the club is going to say, wow, I mean, they really did turn it around at the end of the year. No, this season is a failure. Like, this season is done. So I, I don't know. I love that Frank Lampard is here because the memes are great. Ryan was tossing Frank Lampard memes in our Slack before we started recording. Like, this thing is, this thing is great. It's great content. But nothing really in how we talk about Chelsea, I think, can change throughout yeah. the rest of this Premier League and Champions League season because they're not going to get anywhere. 
Yeah, I agree, Joe. I mean, they do have a Champions League quarterfinal coming up um, against Real Madrid, right? That's that's that, who they've yep. got in, 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 in that round. <laughs> Casual. Uh, good luck to them. <laughs> We're going to talk a little bit more about Real Madrid later on in the show. They are hitting their stride at the right time, as they do at this time of the year, every single year. But um, yes, I agree, Joe. It seems unlikely that the Champions League is going to bear any fruit for them. Obviously, the Premier League season is done. The paradox with Frank Lampard is... He wants to be in a front foot attacking manager, but there is no coaching acumen behind that intention. So the thing about Everton, uh, uh, Lampard at Everton, was that he, he didn't know how to construct attacking sequences other than just telling his players, yeah, just go and attack, do stuff in the final third. That was one of the biggest biggest criticisms of him at Everton in particular is they didn't score goals. So. What was Chelsea's biggest issue under Potter? They didn't score goals. So I'm not entirely sure what sort of lift Lampard is going to give them other than just looking to the talented individuals in that squad and saying to them, go and do, the, go and do your thing. And maybe that'll work for Mason Mount. Maybe that'll work for Christian Pulisic. But I don't expect Chelsea to all of a sudden become a much better coach team between now and the end of the season. Joe, you mentioned that this season is effectively a write-off with, if they are still alive in the Champions League, maybe are hanging by a thread with Real Madrid coming up next Tuesday, next Wednesday. It, no, it's next Tuesday, isn't it? But there's there's a potential issue here of missing the boat on an elite manager, is there not? Because if they had taken a swing on Nagelsmann or Luis Enrique or Pochettino or anyone else out there at this point, there's going to be other clubs in the summer who are circling to try and get those managers. And sure, Chelsea will just throw more money at the problem, but they might be putting themselves behind in in the queue a little bit here. And that is, I think, the most interesting angle of all of this, right, is Chelsea's decision when you fire Lampard to not immediately say, all right, we know our next manager, we're going to go out, we're going to get them now, we're going to do what Bayern Munich did, right? Is, uh, you know, Bayern Munich almost, it seems like, according to reports, firing Nagelsmann because they wanted Tuchel. Like, they already knew the next guy. Chelsea, it feels like, don't know who the next guy is. There's been reports from a number of different outlets that Luis Enrique is in uh, is in London for talks with Chelsea, that they're also interested in Nagelsmann, that they're interested in Pochettino. Like, there's a, a long list of folks that Chelsea are interested in, and my read is that they don't know for sure who they want yet. So in some ways, I, I do commend Chelsea for not jumping all the way in with someone and saying, you know what, let's just go with Enrique, let's call it good, let's make it happen, he's our guy. I, I kind of commend them for not jumping headfirst into that situation. At the same time, they probably should have been a bit further along in all of these thought processes and you know the whiteboard in the in the in the you know boardroom that has the list of candidates on it. Like after, you know, I, ideally they would have been further along there. But Ryan, maybe there's an element here that like Tottenham will take their guy. Or, you know, Real Madrid will take... I mean, maybe they're they're all sort of going to get knocked off the list and Chelsea just end up with the last one. Or, Ryan, maybe Chelsea just toss more money, like you said. And, and maybe none of this matters and the summer is going to be a perfect timeline to get something done. I don't have the inside info in there to, to really land firmly on one side or the other. But it really does feel to me that all of those things are possible outcomes. And that, again, is the most interesting bit about all this for me. This is a club that's clearly now making decisions from a, from a place of fear of fan backlash and that, that my, my impression of that comes from a lot of the, the reporting the athletic has done over potter's sacking where basically todd bowley and the chelsea board on saturday evening after they'd lost to aston villa didn't think they were going to be getting rid of graham potter but they were they were caught by surprise um, they were surprised at the reaction from the Stamford Bridge crowd to that defeat. A lot of boos, a lot of vitriol towards Graham Potter. And so they've made a decision on that, on, on the basis of that. 
they haven't had a plan in place and so they've looked to a club legend to essentially appease fans from now until the end of the season but even then an interim manager if the if the idea is to prepare the team for next season you want an interim manager who is going to do some preparation work for that permanent manager. So while Manchester United's appointment of Ralph Ranić, I don't think anyone would say was very successful on the pitch at all, I would argue that he did some of the groundwork, maybe just a minimal amount, but nonetheless some amount of groundwork for Eric Ten Hag to come in in the summer. There is at least some overlap between those two managers. They are different managers, different approaches, but there was some overlap, some groundwork for Ten Hag to work on, certainly on a pressing, defensive side of the ball sense of, of things. What is Frank Lampard going to do for someone like Luis Enrique, who seems to be the, the new front runner? Last week it was uh, Julian Nagelsmann. This week it's, it's uh, Luis Enrique, who's been to London for talks. He was uh, pictured in London. The Spanish media caught him at Barcelona Airport as well, flying back. That's something that has very much happened. What's Lampard doing to prepare for Lucho coming into Chelsea? I just can't see a strategy in that at all. He's getting him ready for, for a Lucho treble. Because uh, Chelsea famous <laughs> for their... Strike force, which is what Lucho does best. He's with, laying right? out all the lovely gilets for Lucho, Lucho <laughs> to, to pick from as he walks through the Stamford Bridge entrance door. Marvellous, marvellous stuff. Chelsea at Wolves this weekend. And then, as we mentioned, Real Madrid in the Champions League next week. Good luck, Mr. Lampard, with that. Uh, this is a midweek review as we teed up this episode at the start. So let's do some of that, shall we? Um Games on Tuesday and Wednesday, we should probably talk about the big one, Graham. Let's spend a good half an hour on Chelsea nil, Liverpool nil. Um, <laughs> Please don't. The, the pre-Lampard era, Chelsea. Uh, not a classic game. The, no. This game always seems to be nil-nil between these two sides. Um, my favourite thing was on the BBC commentary feed where you get the live text. Uh, at the 90-minute mark, it said five minutes of added time for neither team to score. Uh, and the, my favourite comment on the Guardian uh, um, match report, someone wrote, that was like watching two inebriated toddlers try to catch a slippery eel. <laughs> That's a good description. I can't really better that. Uh, that pretty much sums it up. This wasn't much of a spectacle. You can see in the performance of both these teams that they are they are struggling. I thought Chelsea actually started quite well. There was a good chance for Kovacic. Um, they were moving relatively well in the final third. There was a couple of disallowed goals, I want to say, for Reese James and Kai Havertz. Um, Enzo Fernandez did well in central midfield. Kante's return from injury has made a bit of a difference to that unit. He is regaining fitness and sharpness and is getting better with every single game. But no goals. So Potter is gone, but it was kind of the same old story for Chelsea. And then the, the match just sort of fizzled out entirely. In the second half, maybe we shouldn't be too surprised about that from a Liverpool perspective because Klopp made a number of big changes to his team for this game. So there was no Salah, no Robertson, no Van Dijk, no Alexander-Arnold, no Gakpo. I'm not really sure if this was meant to be a message to a underperforming team or if he's resting some key players for Arsenal this weekend, which is obviously a big game for both of those teams, but it certainly didn't help a pretty low-quality match. Indeed. Less said about that one, the better. Let's go to uh, West Ham 1, Newcastle 5. Oh boy, this one on Wednesday evening. Uh, David Moyes, as we record, Graham, still is in gainful employment. I'm not sure if that will hold for the entirety of this podcast. Uh, not a great night for him, nor for Lucas Fabianski. Uh, for, for at least one goal in spectacular yeah. style. 
I mean, some of the defending from West Ham in this game was absolutely pitiful. And and this match, when I was watching it, felt like it might be the breaking point for West Ham with David Moyes. There were fans streaming out of the place when Liverpool were 4-5-1 and five, one up. They were taunting Moyes. There were chants, anti-Moyes chants, anti-board chants, um, which is obviously something we've seen at West Ham over the seasons. And as you say, Ryan, this was a performance littered with mistakes by West Ham. And while I don't know how much Moyes can legislate legislate for that, it's I guess it's easiest to get rid of the manager to try and fix that problem. And when you've got so many teams around West Ham getting a new manager bounce, I guess it must be tempting. From Newcastle's point of view, we spoke yesterday about their defence this season, but some of their attacking play in this match was incredible. And I guess forced some of those defensive mistakes from West Ham, uh, Joe Linton, Wilson, San Maximum, their movement was just too much for West Ham who as I say just looked all over the place at the back but Newcastle did a really good job of stretching the pitch both vertically in terms of the width and that then opened up space in the West Ham defence there was a goal in this game where for once I think everyone was thankful for VR, unless you're a West Ham fan of course because Joe Linton races in behind he I think rounds Fabianski and scores for all the world looked like he was offside and then they show the replay and he was actually onside so that was one of those goals where you are thankful for VR. and there were a number of occasions like that where it just felt like Newcastle were running through West Ham at will so not a good day for the Hammers. Not a good day indeed. David Moyes being very open and honest in his post-match interview saying, yeah, the the fans who left early, I understand I would have done the same thing, which is maybe not the kind of uh, talk you want. Don't say that. Yeah, (laughs) I I appreciate the honesty, I suppose I would say there. But um, West Ham are 15th, uh, but they're very Mm. much only out the relegation zone on goal difference. Three points separating 18th and 12th right now. So anything can happen down what a season. there. Yeah, it, it is a crazy season. On that note, uh, Leeds 2, Nottingham Forest 1, Joe. Uh, a good three points for Leeds. Yeah, this, this felt like a six-pointer for them, right? Because both of these teams are fighting to avoid getting relegated. It's still wild to me that Nottingham Forest spent $8 billion in the summer transfer window and are where they are right now. Like, that is... That is crazy and, you know, a little bit shocking that building FIFA Ultimate Team in real life doesn't work out especially well. But this is a massive win for Leeds and with a lot of USMNT influence on that team, it was good to see them have both a good performance and a massive result. You know, now, after this win, Jack Harrison gets a goal to, to lead things off and Leeds, you know, that's the equalizer for them and they sort of never look back from that point. Now Leeds United are in 13th. On 29 points, Ryan, you just mentioned how congested it was. Like, they're in 13th, two points above Bournemouth in 18th. And they are five points, five slots higher on the table. This is all bonkers, right? None of these teams are safe. But for Leeds United, who have had a a really dreadful season, to be quite honest, for them to get this result against another team that's also battling relegation, this was, in my mind, one of their most most important results of the season so far. Yeah, and this was probably the best performance I've seen from Wes McKinney in the Premier League since he he joined Leeds in in January. He was very, very good. His ability on the half turn was important to Leeds getting in between the lines. I noticed some Leeds fans kind of putting together, you know, those YouTube style compilations with a dance track over the top of Wes McKinney um, spinning markers and playing passes in behind. And it looks like he's got a good relationship with Mark Rocca in central midfield. So a lot of positive signs for him and for Leeds from this game. Definitely so. And more positivity from Aston Villa with a 2-1 win at Leicester. Uh, Villa, after uh, heralding the Frank Lampard era at the weekend by beating Chelsea, getting another win here. We saw um, pictures of Uno Emery on the on the bus back home from the Chelsea game on his laptop and uh, 
I think on the Instagram, the club said he's preparing for the next game. And that paid off, Graham, because uh, another three points for Villa, who are doing very well this season. I presumed after a win, he just poses with it. Has anyone seen Unai Emery's Twitter profile picture where he's got the, the ball in his hand and he's looking at it like some sort of philosopher? Has anyone seen that? I'm sure <laughs> listeners will, will, some listeners will have seen that. I, pre- I just presume that's how he sits on the team bus going back to, to Birmingham. This was another big result for Villa. They just continue to rise under Unai Emery. Uh, Ollie Watkins is in the form of his life at the moment. He's got eight goals in, in the last 10 games. Um, all his numbers actually I was going to say all his numbers are, are up some of his numbers are down so things like touches and sprints and off-ball runs are actually down on Steven Gerrard's time in charge but I think that just says Unai Emery wants to get him into better positions and is building around him as like an attacking focal point and getting him into positions where he can actually have an influence and an impact on the match but yeah there's a really good balance to this Villa team right now I think I don't have the Premier League table in front of me right now but I think they're in play for a European spot which I think is that's quite funny that Unai Emery will not be denied and he will uh, drive any team that he isn't the manager of into European football and he will win a trophy in European football because that is what he does yeah uh, Aston Villa in seventh on 44 points they are uh six points off of fifth place Tottenham on 50 points mm. so yeah that could happen Graham very impressive stuff and Man United in fourth equal on points with Newcastle after a 1-0 win over Brentford Mark Rash- Marcus Rashford with the goal seems like many many years ago that uh, Brentford beat Man United 4-0 but it was the start <laughs> of this season the reverse fixture Graham I can't believe that was this season. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's been a long old season, almost like there's been a World Cup right in the middle of it. Yeah. This was certainly better for my United, falling on from that dismal performance we spoke about on the weekend review on Monday um, against Newcastle. Uh, Veghorst, he came out of the team for the first time since he joined. I did not foresee that happening when he joined Manchester United that he would start every single game until mid-April. But that is what happened. Rashford played through the middle, Jaden Sancho on the left. Um, I just thought that allowed my United more ways of playing around the attacking third with the ball. It was slightly less transition-y, which is maybe what Ten Hag is looking for, medium to long term. Um, and I thought with Rashford dropping deep in particular, and Sabitzer actually pushing forward as the nine, at times that's where the winning goal comes from, is him actually being the furthest forward player, him nodding it down across from Anthony into, into the box. He nods it down for Rashford and he finishes. So... Yeah, I wouldn't say it was the most emphatic performance for Manchester United. Uh, Brentford were difficult to break down, though, and, and there was some good variety, and they probably did deserve the win. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about all the Continental Cup action, including, but not limited to, the Classico. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attentions to the Copa del Rey. The final will be contested between Real Madrid and Osasuna on May 6th after the semi-final second legs took place this week. Uh, let's go to the Camp Nou. Barcelona nil, Real Madrid 4. A 4-1 aggregate after Barca taking the 1-0 lead in the other in the first leg of this one. Barcelona won the last three Clásicos. That streak is over emphatically. Uh, Karim Benzema with a hat-trick in this one. In fact, he was inches from getting four goals as well, tapping in uh, or putting something on the first goal as well in this one. He is the second Real Madrid player to score a hat-trick at the Camp Nou. The first one was Ferenc Puskas all the way back in 1963. Worst. Yeah, yeah, not bad, right? Uh, Joe, what do we what do we make of this one? It seemed like Barcelona, Barcelona had um, some threats in the first half, but Madrid yeah. just absolutely went through the gears in the second half. Yeah, I mean, Barcelona coming up, coming in 1-0 up on aggregate into this match had the advantage playing at home. Like, things were very much set up in their favor. And I thought they were pretty clearly the better team in the first half. Real Madrid came out. They defended, you know, very lightly on their right side, Barcelona's left side. Rodrigo was on that side for, for Ancelotti, and he just kind of stayed more centrally and didn't do a lot to track Balde, overlapping on Barcelona's left, Real Madrid's right. And Barcelona took advantage of that. They found Balde. He got forward into the box. In general, Barcelona created some good chances. They were not out of this thing at all from the start of this match. And on the whole, they outshot Real Madrid 11-9. to like, like, these two teams are both creating chances. Real Madrid's just happened to come later, and they happened to come at the exact right time after Barcelona failed to capitalize on theirs. Like, that is, that's soccer. And a lot of the times you can't explain some of this stuff just down to who put the ball in the back of the net and who didn't. Of course, there are tactical things, some of them I just got to there, that influence things as well. But, you know, Real Madrid, Real Madrid are just, they're built for this kind of stuff. Like, they are built for these kind of knockout games. The talent they have to attack on the break, which is really where a lot of their goals came from. They get ahead, they get up 1-0, then they get up 2-0, and it's the 50th minute by the time they're up 2-0. The tables then have completely turned, and Barcelona need to go and, and be on the front foot. That's what Real Madrid love. Like, they love when you overextend and Vinicius Jr. can go out there and do Vinicius Jr. like stuff. It's, it's unbelievable. Did anybody see? Did anybody see the assist that Vinicius Jr. had oh, yes. for the fourth goal? H- how? how? If, listeners, if you haven't seen this, I will, I will do my best to describe it to you, but I will fail. Believe me, you should just go look it up. It is unbelievable. Vinicius Jr. is driving forward into space. He's got a ton of space because Barcelona are desperate. The game's already over at this point, and Real Madrid are just sort of, you know, digging the knife a little bit deeper into Barcelona. Vinicius Jr. drives forward. He's got the ball on his right foot. He takes a touch with the inside of his right, bounces it off his own left foot. Doesn't like move it from right to then kick it with his left. No, he bounces the ball off of his left foot to Kareem Benzema on his right. It is, it is the most absurd pass I've seen in a long time. And I've never seen a pass quite like this in a game. Certainly not one of this caliber. I was awestruck. Like I, I was completely shocked in this moment. Real Madrid on the break. Vinicius Jr. on the break, they are unbeatable in those moments. Joe, I had to watch that several times to figure out which foot he actually played the pass with because it, it was like a Ronaldinho movement and being at the Camp Nou, it feels appropriate. It, it felt like something like Ronaldinho would do. Ridiculous. It was unreal. Absolutely yeah. unreal. Yeah, uh, and, and that, I feel like that moment is a microcosm of Real Madrid, right? Barcelona come out, they're in this 3-2-5 shape. They're keeping the right back a little bit deeper. The left back's going high on the wing. I mentioned Balde already. They're trying to overload Real Madrid's right side. They're, they're pushing the wing back forward. is trying to get in that half space, and they're trying to cut the ball back into the box. 
and play like this really detailed, intricate possession soccer. And Real Madrid are fine with that. Like Ancelotti just says, yeah, we're not even going to defend on half the field. Like we're just going to let David Alaba and Militao kind of clean things up in the back. And and it, it worked. Like it's just it's ridiculous. Some of these moments are ridiculous. And and then you see Real Madrid attacking attacking into space with Vinicius Jr. and Benzema, yeah. two of the the greatest soccer players on the planet right now. Vinicius Jr. probably the best winger on earth in this moment. And it's it is just unreal. Like they're just so so good. Yeah, the only surprising thing for me is we haven't seen more of this sort of performance from Real Madrid against Barcelona this season because. While there's no denying the progress that Barcelona have made this season, this was exactly the sort of performance that has stopped me from going all in on them under Xavi Hernandez. And Real Madrid are kind of a team that is built to expose their weaknesses in defence in particular. Um, and, And normally in La Liga, they get away with that Barcelona because La Liga is pretty weak this season and teams like Osasuna and Girona and and those lot don't really have the quality to take advantage but Real Madrid they have that quality and and they made Barcelona pay and there was a point in the second half where Real Madrid realized what I've been saying about Barcelona for a while run at them and they can't cope and as I say Real Madrid have more players capable of running at opponents than than most and I think it was Manchester United who really set the precedent here um, that if you can get into the, the attacking half spaces and carry the ball and open up that space in transition, Barcelona, the, 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 individual that, the individuals that they have, they will dive into tackles or they will, they will stand off and give you space. They, they, can't, they can't handle it. And it's a great anomaly of this season that Barcelona have conceded so few goals in La Liga because that is just not reflective of the team that I've watched. Even those teams that I mentioned, your your Osasunas and your Gironas, those sort of teams, have given Barcelona trouble this season. There have been many instances where they are hanging on towards the end of games and they keep a clean sheet, miraculously. But this is the sort of performance, as I say, that has stopped me from saying Barcelona are back. They still have quite a bit of progress to make in that regard. Well, and it seems to me, Graham, that one of the main reasons why Real Madrid were able to turn the tables a bit and to run at them, well, there's a couple reasons. The first is that Barcelona never finished them off, right? They had attacking chances in the first half. They didn't fully capitalize on them. And so as a result, they're still trying to push. They're still trying to play and, and, and end things, which then opened up opportunities for Real Madrid to go and attack on the break and, and to do it again and again and again. And then for Vinicius Jr. to do that thing we talked about already. So that's one bit here. The other thing is, you look at the Barcelona lineup in this game, this is not like a, a very yeah, had good team, right? So you you go from back to front, you're looking at Jules Koundé, you're looking at Araujo, you're looking at, uh, at, at Alonso, Marcus Alonso in the middle of the back line, you're looking at Balde. I mean, I think coming into this year, Araujo would have been the only one of those players that Xavi was keen to start. Maybe, um, maybe I, I don't know if that's fair. Well. That, that, I would say that's three of their starting four. It's the midfield for me that was the big difference. They only had Busquets of the three with Pedri and De Jong missing. But the defense is three of their starting four that they've had this season, largely. Yeah, I guess then you can argue whether that's good or not. But that's that's a you're right. Framing <laughs> that a little bit differently is probably fair. But yeah, the midfield with, with Roberto and, and Kessie, and then even you think about the attack. Coming into this season, it was a lot of Gavi and Pedri sort of around Busquets and those two players with how good they are on the ball, how clean they are on the ball, Pedri more so than Gavi, but they give you this unreal control. Like that's what made Barcelona under Pep Guardiola back in the 2010s so dangerous is because Xavi and Iniesta and Busquets and Messi never lost the ball. Like how are you supposed to take the ball from them? You can take the ball from Sergio Roberto. You can take the ball from Frank Kessier and open the game. And that's when Barcelona's defensive control then starts to be compromised because they don't have a Virgil van Dijk. Like, they don't have a Ruben Diaz. They don't have these 
rock in the back center backs that the elite teams of the last six years have had to clean things up, right? City have these really aggressive defenders and really capable 1v1 defenders. Nathan Ake is a good example. He's not like, you know, the greatest center back in the world, but he's incredibly athletic. He's good on the ball. He can cover ground. Like he can do all of those things. Kunde, I think, can be that player. Araujo, I think, is a very good defender. They have talent in that way, but you know, not at the level that some of the, the actual contenders for the Champions League trophy right now have. So you take out some of the control in midfield, you change the personnel, you give injuries to either you know possession hubs or really key defensive players, and then you just add the fact that Barcelona's defensive quality is not especially high. And I think you end up with Real Madrid scoring a bunch of goals on you while you just sit back and watch in the second half. Yeah, injuries were certainly a factor. Joe, that is a fair point to make that midfield looks very different if uh, Pedri and De Jong in particular are, are, are available. But then I look at the one injury that Real Madrid had, the one big injury they had, um, they don't have a left-back at the moment, so Camavinga is playing left-back, left left side of that defence. And the way that he worked with... Uh, Alaba to ensure that Rafinha didn't get into the half spaces and wasn't able to really cause much of a threat throughout the match. I contrast that to how Araujo and Jules Kunde just gave Vinicius all the space that he wanted and nobody really seemed to know who was closing them down or yeah. if they were standing off. There was just, there wasn't that tether that there was between Camavinga and Alaba. So yes, personnel makes a big difference, but also I think Xavi's coaching should also be looked at as well. Well, and Graham, I have one other question for you. I know we've talked a lot about Barcelona. I hope we gave Real Madrid some, some of their due because they were fantastic to watch in this game. What is, like if everybody's healthy and coming into the year, like what is Barcelona's top back four? Because I, I went back to some of the games earlier in the year and it's Araujo as a carryover and Balde occasionally, but we saw a lot of Jordi yeah. Alba. We saw a lot of Eric Garcia. Whether or not that's a good idea is a different question. And then we saw a lot of Andres Christensen. Like, like what is the top four along the back line for Xavi? So the easiest way to answer this is to go into who scored and they give you the seasonal lineup, which is what it says on the tin, the, the team that has started most over the course of the season. They have the back four as Kunde, Araujo, Eric Garcia and Alex Baldi. Um, I would have had Christensen. I'm a little bit surprised Garcia has played more games alongside Araujo at cent in central defence. Um, Christensen, I think, has done a relatively good job this season. He's very good at playing out from, from the back. But there are questions over... For me, though, you highlighted Kunde. Um, Joe is maybe the one that could potentially be elite level. For me, it's Ronald Araujo. Ronald Araujo yeah, is, the, is the guy that Barcelona can build around. I'm a big fan of Ronald Araujo. They moved him out to right back for this game because he, in previous Classicals, has done an excellent job of shutting down Vinicius Jr. Hmm. And obviously he gets torn to shreds in this game by <laughs> Vinicius Jr. But it was a little bit like, do you remember there was a period when Juan Bissaka just stopped Raheem yep. Sterling yep. in every Manchester derby? Similar sort of thing with Araujo and Vinicius Jr. before uh, before Wednesday night. So he starts at right back. But Araujo is the one I would build around. But there are questions over every other player in that back four. Certainly at left back, Xavi has been switching between him and Jordi Alba and Marcus Alonso over the, co the, over the full season. He doesn't really seem to be convinced on any of them Eric Garcia I think everyone knows my opinions on Eric Garcia not really sure how he's a Barcelona player and then Jules Koundé is still he still looks like a central defender playing at right back when he's playing in that position so it's it's certainly the area of that team that going into this summer that would be the main focus of my attention if I was uh, Xavi Indeed. And Real Madrid, as we say, pretty splendid in this game. I'm sure Frank Lampard was watching this one thinking, OK, yeah, yeah, oh, we, we can handle this. Very good. Yeah. Um, 
Interesting, Graham. Some reports about the Camp Nou itself. Uh, part of yeah. it, or some of it, being demolished in the summer, even though they don't have um, like planning permission or anything yeah. in place yet. So, th- th- some changes are coming to this stadium pretty soon. So, this was the last classical at the Camp Nou for a long time, and the last classical at this iteration of the Camp Nou because, um, of course, Barcelona are redeveloping the stadium and they will be playing at the Olympic Stadium in Barcelona for all of next season. The reports you're referencing, Ryan, Ryan, there was a big um, in depth report on the, on the Athletic this week about how the money isn't yet in place to complete the project and they've already started demolishing the, uh, the old Camp Nou. And they have hired basically these sort of amateurs with no past experience of projects like this to do the construction work and the planning. So there's growing concern over this project and there's a growing sense it could be a long time until Barcelona are back at their home se- home stadium, I should say. I kind of think of how Spurs were moving into their new stadium the next month. It's going to be next month. It's going to be next month. And then a full season passed and they were still playing at Wembley. And that kind of feels like it might be the case for a camp now. So it is an iconic stadium for anyone who has been recently it is in desperate needs of renovation. I don't think anyone would deny that. But a little bit concerned that Barcelona are tearing down their iconic and spiritual home without a solid plan of how to rebuild it. Yeah, I went I went and did the Camp Nou tour last year and it does probably need a lick of paint and maybe a little bit more than that. But it does it's it's one of those stadiums, Graham, that has a feel about it. It's one of those mm. like the old Wembley Stadium I thought had a very magical feel about it. And even if it was falling apart and the toilets were terrible, yeah. as is the case with the Camp Nou, it, it's it does feel well, a bit of a shame. Well, it's similar to San Siro, right? Taylor and I talked about this on Soccer 101 when we, we covered like the great stadiums in world soccer. There are some venues that just have an intangible quality. I'd say the San Siro has that, Camp Nou has that. But yeah, I, I, I agree. But when you see Real Madrid building a spaceship out of the Bernabeu, it feels like <laughs> Barcelona have been pressured into doing something about their stadium. Yeah, pull some extra levers. I'm sure it'll all be fine. The other thing to mention, Barcelona fans singing Lionel Messi's name throughout this match. Even for me, a non-Barca fan, there was something about hearing that chant again again during a, a classical that was almost sort of cathartic. And it feels like it is growing as a possibility that he could be back at Barcelona next season. Xavi Hernandez addressing it publicly in press conferences, basically admitting there had been discussions. I believe there's a Barcelona director as well that says there's been discussions between Barcelona and Messi. Um, So, sorry, Inter-Miami fans, it seems like uh, back to Barcelona before he heads out to South Beach might be the route that he's taking. Graham, he's been offered an equity stake in Inter-Miami. Are you sure he's going to go back to where he had his success? Oh, who hasn't? (laughs) (laughs) Who hasn't been offered an equity stake in Inter-Miami? Okay. Uh, (laughs) Elsewhere in the Copa del Rey, of course, Real Madrid will be facing Osasuna. Graham, if you'd asked me to bet on who would be meeting one of the Clasico um, teams in the final, I would have bet Athletic Club because it seems like they always get to the Mm. final competition. Real Madrid actually don't tend to take this uh, seriously. They tend to get in the Champions League final more often than the Copa del Rey final. But Osasuna are through 2-1 on aggregate in their first final uh, since 2005. Yeah, so this is the the sort of thing that makes you realise what cup competitions can mean to clubs. So Osasuna had only ever made it to one cup final in their entire history before, as you say, in 2005. They had to ride their luck at times in this game because Athletic, they levelled it up in the first half through Inaki Williams. He had another goal disallowed. Nico Williams missed a couple of glorious opportunities as well. It goes to extra time. 
And then Pablo Ibanez pulls out this magnificent side foot volley finish from the edge of the box to send Osasuna through. Osasuna through to the final and then cue absolute madness in Pamplona with tens of thousands of fans on the street chanting, setting off flares it's like 2am or 3am in the morning by the way and basically just having a big old party and then Osasuna put out a tweet the next morning saying the training is cancelled and you know the reason why (laughs) which I thought was good, (laughs) Uh, just glorious scenes all round very good indeed. As we say, Real Madrid taking on Osasuna in the Copa del Rey final a month away on May 6th. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to the Copa Italia. We're going to talk DFB Pokal. Even the Dutch Cup's coming in here. And of course, some CONCACAF Champions League to talk about too. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our midweek review. Let's go to the Coppa Italia. This was the semi-final first legs that were played out this week. The highlight of which surely is uh, Juventus 1 into 1. Well, I don't know if we'll call it a highlight. A stoppage time penalty from Romelu Lukaku uh, cancelling out um, a late goal from Juan Cuadrado in this one. Romelu Lukaku sent off for a second yellow moments afterwards and uh, plenty of controversy, Graham, with racist abuse from Juventus fans. Very unfortunate, this. Yeah, so he's shown the the second booking for essentially um, giving some back to the home fans who who Lukaku says racially abused him during the match um, and the, the referee sends him off for that. It's just the same story over and over again with Italian soccer and it's just unacceptable it was unacceptable a long time a long time ago and it's certainly unacceptable now and Lukaku he posted to his Instagram after the match that Italian football really needs to do something about it this time it feels like that maybe there's a little bit more pressure on the authorities to to take some action the reaction from the inter team in general was um, understandably um, quite angry after Lukaku was sent off Handanovic has also shown a red card for his reaction but the depressing thing is I just wouldn't count on Italian football or the authorities doing anything about it because, as I say, we've been in this position before and this just keeps happening. Yeah, very, very disappointing. Uh, something does need to change in this country in which I currently reside. You're quite right there, Graham. Sad scenes. Joe, anything to say about the, the game itself? Uh, not a ton, to be honest with you. This played out pretty much like you would expect it to. With Inter and, and with Juve, Juve playing mostly against the ball, both teams in a back three for large stretches of this game. Inter wanting to do more in possession. Ultimately, they have to climb back uh, to, to get in the lead. Cuadrado scores a really nice goal in the 83rd minute to give Juve the lead. Felt like that was going to be it. There hadn't been a, a ton of super clear-cut chances in this game. And I mentioned Juve playing against the ball. 
this was a nice sequence of possession. It's a, it's a long spell of Juve on the ball. They get the ball over to the left half space, cross into the box, and Quadrado gets on it on the weak side and scores. And then Lukaku equalizes via penalty. We already talked about that. So, you know, it played out pretty much according to the script. I would imagine we'll see a pretty similar script in the next leg with Inter at home controlling the ball. Like, I, I struggle to get a read on on many teams in Italy right now outside of Napoli. Like, none of these teams seem truly inspiring. AC Milan showed something over the weekend in that 4-0 win over Napoli. That was, like, the biggest spark that we've seen from any of these other top teams in a while. Juve in particular, like, we we talked about them a lot more at the beginning of the season than we have in the second half of the season. They've just fallen off a cliff, both because they had all the points taken away from them and also just because... They don't. There's no magic about this Juve team at this point. They're not particularly effective. They're not especially dangerous. They could absolutely advance in this competition and beat Inter. They're in a fine spot for the second leg. Not a great spot. Not as, as good of a spot as they'd like to be in. But there is not a lot of appeal, unless you're a Juve fan, to turning on this Allegri team and, and watching them play. Like they're, They don't seem to really scare anybody right now. And, and for Inter, I guess they don't really scare anybody that much more either. It's a weird situation right now in Italy. It is indeed. Uh, let's go over to Germany for the deaf people. Carl, quarterfinal stage this was. Uh, by Munich 1, Freiburg 2. And I believe they're playing each other in the league this weekend as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Joe, Thomas Tuchel now has lost half of his games in charge of this team. 50% loss rate. <laughs> Tuchel out, I say. I was wondering Tuchel how skin. you were... I was wondering how you were going to lead us into that. I mean, yeah, this is a this is a big disappointment for Bayern to lose this match, to go up 1-0 in the first half through Upamecano. Freiburg equalized. Did anybody see the first goal from Hoffler in this match? This was an incredible strike from distance, like an absolute banger to get Freiburg back in it. And then they win on a last-second penalty kick in the 95th minute. It's a Musiala handball. It sucks for Bayern. Like, this is obviously not what they wanted. In general, though, this kind of falls into my thought that Tuchel is essentially going to get a free pass. It's like I talked about with Chelsea earlier in Lampard. Like, we're not, we're not, or at least we shouldn't, read too much into anything that happens, barring, you know, Bayern maybe losing every single game they play in from this point forward. Like, uh, uh, things are going to change. They're going to evolve as they head into next season, and that's when the real test is going to be. It's still a miss for Bayern, but the Champions League and, and the Bundesliga matters significantly more to them than the Pokal. And in, in general, like, I don't think anybody will be right to judge Tuchel fully on what happens between now and then. I still think Bayern are going to be good. I still think they're going to win the league, and they could very well win the Champions League also. Uh, but yeah, a, a little bit of a minor setback in general. Let's just take a breath. Let's do that indeed. Yeah, Bayern are facing Freiburg again this weekend before facing Manchester City on Tuesday in the Champions League. Much more important for this team, as you say, Joseph. Uh, IB Leipzig played Borussia Dortmund in the quarterfinals as well. A 2-0 win for Leipzig. A 98th minute goal on the break with no Dortmund keeper in the net is what we all <laughs> love to see, unless you're a BFLB fan, of course. Graham, this this was probably Dortmund's best chance of getting a trophy in a while. Bayern out of the contest. Mm. And they show up with absolutely nothing in this game. I yeah. put it to you that Dortmund are Spursier than Spurs. Potentially, yeah. Um, I was watching this match. This was my second screen, second screen game while the classical was on. Um, so I was a little bit. I was paying more attention to the classical than this game. But nonetheless, from what I could see, the really worrying thing about this match for Dortmund was they just looked really flat. Um, and when you see them like this, it's impossible not to correlate it with what happened at the weekend against Bayern Munich in question. 
has their concentration completely gone? Now we'll learn we'll learn more about that over the the coming weeks and 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 the league where those matches will matter more than a Pokal match, even if it is a you know a quarterfinal uh, match. Leipzig are obviously a good team as well. This is always a challenging match, a, a challenging trip to go to Leipzig and play them. But Dortmund just never had a grip of the game. Timo Werner and Danny Olmo and Schobeslai were just cutting through them at will. There weren't many transition moments for Dortmund, which is where they usually do so much damage. And I should note that Edin Terzic did take some of his key players out of this one, like Sebastian Hilaire and Jude Bellingham. So that suggests that maybe it is all about the league, but it was still a concerning performance by Dortmund, who just offered next to nothing in this match. In Indeed. A uh, quick jaunt over to Holland. We had the Dutch Cup playing out with a Klassiker. Uh, Feyenoord 1, Ajax 2. Uh, the, I, I must admit, I didn't watch this game because uh, it's, well, you know. Uh, but <laughs> this game was stopped for 30 <laughs> minutes uh, after Ajax's David Klassen suffered a head injury. He was hit by an object thrown from the stands. Mm. A 32-year-old Graham was arrested uh, after this incident and the tannoy at the, at the stadium telling off the naughty people for throwing things. Yeah, there's clearly a lot of aggro between these two clubs, which historically we know to be the case, but it seems to be really coming to a head this season with obviously Feyenoord sitting top of the Eredivisie. I believe they're eight points clear of Ajax. Um, and that was the last I saw of that anyway. So they're, they certainly have the advantage in, in the league, but Ajax have a cup final to look forward to after this. And obviously there is stuff that, goes beyond the line like David Klassen being hit by an object from the stand um, the players were also they were taking off the pitch for a period in this game the, ma- the, the, the match was temporarily suspended due to smoke from flares as well which you know isn't helpful so there is a line there but I am excited at the potential for a rivalry between these two teams because Ajax have obviously been so dominant for a long time in the Netherlands and it feels with Arne Schlott as, as manager Feyenoord are starting to swing things back towards them so every match that I see of these two teams is is entertaining I don't see as much of these two teams as I would like to because in the UK the rights have been sold to an app and I don't really fancy watching 90 minute matches on my phone they don't have an iPad app either so that isn't much fun but from what I saw of this game it was an exciting one and also these Ajax kits that they wore for this game ah chef's kiss to Ajax for those those away kits The the red shorts the navy blue shorts the gold numbering that is a special, special look. Yeah, very nice actually. I agree with that. So you have to you have to get an app to watch uh yeah. Eredivisie and Dutch soccer in the UK now. Which app is it? Is it Tinder? Like which one do you use? <laughs> it's not Tinder. Um I believe it's called Mola. I'm not entirely sure what else is on Mola, but it's got Dutch football. So there you go. Wonderful. <laughs> this wonderful streaming era in which we all have to subscribe to a billion things to watch the soccer. Long may continue, Joe. Last but not least on this here podcast, let's hear about the Champions League, the CONCACAF Champions League, more specifically, yeah. uh, three MLS teams in action this week. That's right. So the Philadelphia Union kicked things off first for the MLS crowd. They beat Atlas at home, so in Philadelphia. They, they beat Atlas 1-0. Atlas had some real chances in the first half. Andre Blake came up with some big moments. You know, It wasn't a super open game. The Union tended to avoid making games all that open. They did control a lot of the ball of Philadelphia. But in general, I thought the Union were fine in this game, but they needed a goal, right? You know, if you're trying to go back to Mexico to play away at Atlas, 
you know, with a nil-nil result, that's fine. Like, that's not the worst place to be in, but you feel a lot better getting a goal at home and keeping Atlas off the board as well. You know, one away goal puts the Union in a really good spot for the second leg. So credit to them for getting the the, the, the goal towards the end of this match. Daniel Gazdag penalty kick wins them the game. This Union team was slightly rotated for this match, so we saw a, a couple of players that we wouldn't normally see come in. They're also dealing with a little bit of, of an injury, especially to, to Kai Wagner, I believe, has been on the injury list. He'd be their starting left back, so we saw Nathan Harriel in that spot. And Jack McGlynn, young U.S. central midfielder, played in this match and had a lot of really nice moments on the ball. When you watch Jack McGlynn, you're usually going to get a few left-footed dimes, and that was true in this game. So overall, not the greatest match in Union history, but the team has not started particularly well this season. Seems like partially because of CONCACAF Champions League, they're dealing with more games than the rest of the league or most of the rest of the teams in the league right now. And for them to at least stay alive in this competition and put themselves in a good spot heading into that second leg is is really huge. That's the first MLS team. The other two played each other. That was LAFC and the Vancouver Whitecaps. That game was yesterday as we're recording on Thursday. And LAFC won 3-0. Vancouver had, like I said, uh, with Atlas earlier, they had some chances in the first half. They had some nice moments in this game. In general, the Whitecaps have been a lot better than I thought they would be this year. So, Taylor, if you are listening to this, hopefully that makes you smile. But the fact that they lost 3-0 likely won't make you smile all that much. LAFC just have so much more attacking talent. Like, they just have guys who can break the game wide open. And the biggest guy for them that's breaking the game open is Dennis Boanga, who comes over from Saint-Étienne from France uh, and towards the end of last season, towards the end, I believe, of MLS's secondary transfer window, and doesn't really impact the team all that much. LAFC doesn't play a massive role for them, at least in terms of putting the ball in the back of the net on their way to MLS Cup. And yet, he's been unreal this season. The underlying numbers liked him a lot last year. He gets two goals in this game. Uh, Poku gets the second, uh, gets the third goal in general for this team. Like LAFC are cruising right now. They're the most talented team in MLS. They're playing the best soccer, I believe, of, of anybody in MLS, maybe outside of the Seattle Sounders. LAFC are scary good. They weren't miles better in this game for the majority of the game. But kind of like we said with Real Madrid earlier, they have the talent to run at you. They have the individual game breakers to completely destroy your confidence and to edge past you in second halves. And that's exactly what happened in this match. Marvellous stuff. Thank you very much for that review, Joe. And thank you to listeners for joining us on this midweek review episode. Graham Rutherford, a pleasure as always to have your insight on this here audio medium. Thank you, Ryan Billy. And Joe Lowry, thank you once again, sir. Thank you, Ryan. And listener, thank you once again. Happy Frank Lampard Day to all who celebrate. But for now, we'll be back on the feed very shortly. Bye-bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.